You know, we have a big event coming up in 44 days. What takes place in 44 days? The election. It's an opportunity for us to participate in something very patriotic. And we all, if we're at the right age, because I'm looking in this room and not everyone's there yet, but if you're 18 or older, you have an opportunity to vote. I remember when I was 18 years old, 17 years old, high school speech class, I did a sermon, not a sermon, (laughs) preparing me for a sermon, I did a speech about why we should all go and vote. And that day is coming so quickly, and some of you are ready to vote, and you're going to vote for probably one of these two candidates. You're probably going to vote for Joe Biden, or you're probably going to vote for Donald Trump. Some of you in this room today, you're ready to vote for Joe Biden. You're like, I've got it all figured out. I know why I like Joe. I know exactly why I'm voting for him. And all those people who like Trump, I don't understand why they're voting for him, but I'm voting for Joe Biden. Some in this room, you're thinking, I'm voting for Donald Trump. Donald Trump's my candidate. That's who I'm voting for. I like this about him. I like that about him. And I don't know how people are voting for Joe Biden. And we have both sides of that. Some of you, though, in here might choose to sit out. You might say, I don't care about any candidate. I'm not excited about either one of them. And I'm not going to vote this year. Some of you in here say, I want to write in another candidate. Like Mickey Mouse, because that may be a better choice. Some of you may be in that road. And this is something that we as Americans have an opportunity to do. It's a part of expressing our citizenship as Americans. Some take this very seriously. And I know because I watch some of your Facebook posts. Some of you are all, I mean, you're into the politics thing. You're like, man, this is the way it should go. This is who you need to vote for. Here's why you should vote for him. Here's why you don't vote for that person. You're crazy you vote on that side. No, you're crazy you vote on that side. You're a Christian you vote this way. You're not a Christian you vote this way. I mean, we're all over the place because we get so serious about it. Some of us. Say, you know what? I don't really care. I don't have much interest in it. The president changes every four years. There's always a new election, and and God's still in control, and I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah, I'm going to go vote, but it's no big deal. And we're all over the place in this. Let, Let me tell you something I believe to be true right at the start of this message. Some of you think Joe Biden victory is the best thing for this country, and some of you think a Donald Trump victory is the best thing for this country. Let me share some really hardcore truth with you today. America's problems are not political, they're spiritual. And there's no political solution to a spiritual problem because God didn't send a politician to save the world. He sent Jesus Christ to save the world. So don't put any confidence in an elected official to do anything substantial because only God can heal the nation. So you vote as you pray whichever way God wants you to vote, and you give a lot of grace to the other person who votes differently than you. Because we need Jesus Christ in this nation. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We've been walking through this great letter, this letter of Philippians, learning how Paul was talking to the church at Philippi and learning how do we have joy no matter the circumstances. You know, there was a a young child, brother and sister children, who, who were raised in a Christian family, and in a patriotic family. And they were playing together, and they were playing church one day and pretending that they were at church, and their words were overheard by their parents. The boy recited at the end of the mock church service, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the little girl continued in a strong voice, and the republic for which it stands. Their playing church, I think, illustrates well, I think, an issue that we as Christians face, the fact of our dual citizenship. 
of all the temptations, the temptation to become comfortable in this world, to settle down in it, this may be the most difficult one to resist. Christians have always wrestled, how do I live in this world but not be of this world? How do I live on this earth but not participate in all the things that this earth has to offer that's not of God? To hold a dual citizenship with our, with our highest allegiance to the kingdom of heaven. See, the people in Philippi, they can understand this idea of dual citizenship that Paul's going to write about here that we're going to study today. See, even though Philippi was some 600 miles away from Rome, they were still a colony of Rome. They were a group of people who kind of picked up and said, we're going to move over here. And, and though they lived in Philippi, in Macedonia, these peoples were citizens of a Roman empire. And so they didn't speak the language of the Macedonians. They still spoke their common language. They wanted to speak the language of Rome. When they put their children to bed at night, they probably didn't share stories of Macedonia. They told stories of the glory of Rome and how great it was to be part of Rome and what Rome was like because they wanted their kids to understand that citizenship that they had in Rome. My family and I, we live at 2913 Court, Lexington, Kentucky. Now, don't remember that or write it down to come hunt me down or nothing. But that's just a temporary address. That's all it is. It's a temporary address. Yeah, I've lived in that house for 17 years now, but it's not a permanent address. My permanent address is in heaven. I don't know the house number yet, but I'm sure God has one prepared. But that's my permanent address. We're just aliens. We're just, just resident aliens trying to establish a beachhead on someone else's turf as believers in Jesus Christ. We are an island of Christians surrounded by an ocean of non-Christians. So many times, though, we get so stuck that we live in this world. We live in this world, but it's just temporary. That's what Paul's talking about as we look at Philippians 3, starting in verse 17 today. He's telling the Philippian church, you need to keep your focus on where your home is to remember what your true citizenship is. Look at the text in verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. We've been walking through Philippians, and chapter 3 is all about having a spiritual mind. How do I have a spiritual mind? Because when I have a spiritual mind, then I can rejoice. Then I can have joy no matter the circumstances. And so in today's text, I want to talk with you about three truths I see here. Truth number one is that the spiritual mind of Christian citizens imitate excellent Christian role models. Look at verse 17 again. He tells us, you follow the example of Paul in godly living and those who are following his example. Paul and others were not perfect, but they were still excellent role models. And Paul holds himself up and he says, you look at my life and you look at how I've walked in God and how I'm pursuing Christ and you can imitate me. 
Now, I don't know a whole lot about 12-step programs, but I've learned a little bit over the last several years, especially as we've been looking at how can we help people dealing with struggles and addictions in life. And, and, and no matter what the addiction is, you're walking through codependency, you're walking through gambling addiction, alcohol addiction, you're walking through eating disorders, you're walking through any kind of problems. If you're trying to recover and you're in a dependent situation, what they teach you is you've got to have a sponsor. You've got to have someone who's walking with you. That sponsor serves as an example. They serve as a motivator. They serve as someone you can look up to and say, hey, they're having success. I can do what they've done. I can try to follow their pattern. Likewise, Christians cannot grow properly if we don't have someone to look up to, if we don't have a mentor. The Bible calls that a discipler. And you know the sad thing in the church is? Discipleship has gone by the wayside over the years. Not many have embraced that as our role. They say, my job is to be a disciple. Because what's happened is we're afraid to say, hey, you look at me as I look at Christ. You follow me as I follow Christ. Because many times we think, well, that's awful arrogant. Or we think I'm such a failure or I'm doing such a hard, uh, bad job on my walk of Christ. How could I dare tell someone that you follow me as I follow Christ? As Paul would do. You know, I have been blessed in my life to have a group of different mentors and disciplers. I think serving 20 plus years now in ministry, as I look at my life, at different times there's been different people who have served as that mentor, as that discipler. And I know that today I would not be where I am today. I know my walk in Christ would be stunted if I didn't have some people that I look up to and say, hey, those are some people I'm trying to imitate. Those are some examples I can follow because we all need that. That's what Paul's talking talking about. Look at verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul's not bragging here. Paul's not like, hey, look at me. I'm super holy, man. He's not doing that. He's not like, hey, I've got it all figured out. I'm all perfect. Well, how do we know that? Go back to last week. We looked at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on. Remember last week, Paul saying it's not about salvation. He's like, I have attained salvation, but he hasn't been fully sanctified. He's like, I'm still in that process. I'm trying to become more and more like God, become more and more like Christ. But he's like, I'm pressing on towards that. So Paul is saying this in a very humble state, like, listen, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But he's also saying, I don't have it all figured out. I'm not perfect, but I'm striving. And I know my steps are growing towards God. Paul's saying those to those who are prone to follow anybody, because in that time people are like, oh, that sounds good. Oh, that looks good. Or, 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 they, or I see what they're doing. I want what they're doing. Paul's just warning the church in Philippi, don't fall for the false stuff. You look for people who are following Christ. You look for people who have their eyes on Christ. You look for people who are pursuing the risen Jesus Christ. You look for those people and you say, those are some people I need to follow. Those are some people I need to try to imitate my life like. On the other side of that, though, I think it's worth us to ask because I think this is the challenge of Paul. Is our lives a pattern that somebody else could follow? Is our lives an example that you would say, yeah, you can follow me? See, here's the challenge. There are no Bibles like human Bibles. There's all kinds of Bibles out there. If you go to the bookstore, you look them up online, there's all kinds. There's, there's Bibles for kids. There's Bibles for women. There's Bibles for men. There's Bibles for leadership. There's Bibles for this. There's Bibles for that. All these kind of helps, all these kind of Bibles of how to do things. But 
If we are not a Bible to somebody else, to our unsaved friends, to our unsaved neighbors, they'll never want to crack open the Word of God. Because they're looking at us, church. They're looking at believers in Christ, and they're saying, you say you believe in Jesus. You say you're a Christian. Then what's different about you that would make me want to open up, my, open up a Bible? For some, we are the only Bible someone will ever read. For some, we are the first Bible they will read. They'll look at us and go, I need to know who that Jesus is. And they'll want to open their Bible. What do they see? When they look at you and they look at me, what what do people see in our lives? Is our lives in a spot where we could actually look at someone and say, you imitate me as I'm doing my best to imitate Christ. See, we all need mentors that we're looking to who are discipling us, and I'm imitating them, but we also need to have some mentees who are looking at us and saying, you keep following me. I'm following Christ. I'm going to help you follow Christ. You follow me. I'm not going to lead you down the wrong path because I'm going to follow Christ. Are we those kind of examples of God's grace and God's glory? Because he sacrificed everything for us. Truth number two, Paul says, spiritually-minded Christians, Christian citizens, despise worldly values. Despise them. Look at the text, verse 18. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many, that word many is professing Christians and what it means, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Ah, stop there for a second. Paul's like, people who say, I believe in the cross, I believe in the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, They're enemies of the cross. We're going to get into that. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. See, Paul is so passionate here as he's weeping over a worldly-minded people who profess to be Christians. He isn't talking about unbelievers. He's talking about people who say, I believe in Jesus But they're not letting the cross change their lives, not being transformed. And so even though they believe in Jesus, they still embrace all the things of the world. I think there's nothing more dangerous than a professing Christian who is so worldly in their thoughts. Because if someone's looking at you and saying, oh, that's how to follow? That's what a Jesus follower looks like? We lead them down a dangerous path. Paul says, to the enemy against the cross of Christ. It means someone who no longer regards the grace and forgiveness that they've received. The person doesn't regard the need for God's forgiveness. They turn their back on on God. They turn their back on the grace. There'll never be a relationship that's established. And God says, their destiny, Paul's saying, their destiny is utter ruin. Utter ruin. Verse 19, he says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. What is Paul talking about? Their God is their stomach. Well, stomach in the mind of Paul means a, 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 de, leans towards an appetite or, or leans toward desire. Now, the Bible doesn't say that a desire within itself is wrong. What Paul is saying here is that the stomach of desire, there's a necessity to have a stomach of desire in order to live. But desire should not lead us to serve a person or to do things just because of an appetite. So Paul's saying, listen, there are some things you may have an appetite for, but if your appetite is stronger for God, you want to do the things of God. You want to pursue God way, God's ways. Good example of that is my wife and I have been on an eating plan called Whole30 for the last 28 days. We have two days left. Praise you, Jesus. But there are, there, there are desires that come up. You know, like, I want the ice cream. Wait a minute, that's not on the plan. 
I want a pizza. Wait a minute, that's not on a plan. I want some cookies and cake. That's not on a plan. I want a Coca-Cola. That's not on a plan. I cannot wait. Tuesday, I'm drinking a Coca-Cola because <laughs> I haven't had one in the last 30 days. But my stomach says, I want that stuff. But the plan says, no, you want to get healthy, you want to lose a few pounds, you want to feel better, then you follow the plan. And so I stay committed to the plan, even though the stomach of desire, the physical stomach saying, you want this, go get it. And I've had a battle. As a matter of fact, I was about ready to give up the other day, and I read something in a little book that said, now you made a commitment, are you going to stick to your commitment? Stomach of desire is, I desire to watch television shows that don't honor God. I desire sex outside of marriage. I desire to be involved with drugs or alcohol. I desire, you fill in the blank. I desire all the stuff that the world has to offer. And your stomach of desire is going, well, I want that. And Paul's saying, listen, even though you have a stomach of desire, it doesn't honor God. Do you despise the things of the world? You despise the things that are not of God because as a dual citizen, you live here on this earth. And even though you see these things over here that are attractive and they look good, and let's be honest, sometimes they're great fun, are they not? Because this world has some stuff that's awful encouraging and looks awful lot of fun. And if you've participated in some of it at times in your life, which we all have, have we not? We go, that was fun for the moment. It was enjoyable for the moment. But Paul's like, you got to look at those desires of the stomach, the desires of the world, and you got to realize you're a citizen of heaven. And so you don't choose the things of the world. You say, even though that's a desire, I'm walking away from it. See, when fulfilling hedonistic desires become the primary focus of our daily life, it makes the stomach our God, is what Paul is saying. When we're satisfying those desires becomes the purpose of our life, then that stomach is our God and our belly God then starts to change us into a tyrant. Before we know it, it starts to drag us around like we're little slaves. And that's why we go down the road of sin and we keep pursuing it because we started with just one little bite. I know if I drink a Coca-Cola on Tuesday, I guarantee it won't be just one. It'll be two. It'll be one every day because I like to drink Coca-Cola. Why? Because it's loaded with sugar and all that good stuff. You know, that sin that you go, ah, it's just one time. I'm just going to try it out here. I'm just try it out there. That stomach of desire, then you have to feed the desire. And Paul's warning is like, you've got to watch out for that. You've got to because don't let your stomach of desire become your God. Matter of fact, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? He's, the warning aligns with Jesus saying, listen, you may want to go chase after all that kind of stuff, but why forfeit your soul after that? See, look at the end of verse 19. It says, the mind is on earthly things. The battle we fight as Christians is the battle over our minds. What's going on in here and the spirit that lives inside of us, and are we going to win with our mind and with the spirit that lives inside of us? People give Satan too much credit in terms of his power because what we know is the only power Satan has is he's a liar. So how do we know that? Well, John 8, Jesus says, there is no truth in him when he lies. He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, choose this sin. No, that's a big stinking lie because it's going to take you down a rabbit hole that you don't want to go down. But when we believe the lies, we set our minds primarily on these earthly things, it becomes a little trap. It becomes like a little trap. Here are some lies that I just 
kind of sat and thought through and went, what kind of lies are commonly spread by this liar that we as Americans and dual citizenship have to deal with and we as Christians have to deal with? You must be young, good-looking, and popular to be, be a success. That, that's a lie of the evil one. Women must be skinny or they're second-rate. That's a lie of the evil one. The man who dies with the most toys wins. What garbage we take in through mass media won't affect my spiritual life. That's a lie of Satan. What garbage we take in through social media won't affect how I think about God. That's a lie from Satan. Christianity is just a crutch for weak-willed, weak-minded people. That's a lie from the evil one. Do what works for you because there's no absolutes. You live the way you want to live. I'll live the way I want to live, and we'll all just be happy together. That's a lie from the evil one. If it feels right or good, do it by all means. Homosexuality is a legitimate alternative lifestyle. That's a lie from Satan. Marriage isn't important. It's okay just to live together. What's a piece of paper anyway? That's a lie from Satan. Sex before marriage is preferable because it gives you experience when the right person comes along. That's a lie from Satan. Satan has duped us in the area of sexuality, folks. And they're lies because they don't align with God's Word. Don't believe Satan's lies. Don't believe them. We've learned several years ago, my wife and I, to pray a prayer. And it's pretty simple. God, show me the truth. God, help me to know the truth and let go of the lies. Well, how do we do that? You read the Word of God. And when you read the Word of God, then the truth is showed to you. And and even though a friend is saying, no, that's okay. Even though an article says, no, that's okay. Even social media says, no, that's okay. It doesn't matter what public thinking is. It matters what God's thinking is. The way we get God's thinking in line with His truth is to be in His Word. So a couple of truths Paul's telling us. One, as spiritually-minded Christian citizens, we've got to imitate Christian role models, and we need to be that Christian role model for others. And truth number two, spiritually-minded Christian citizens despise worldly values. And truth number three is spiritually-minded Christian citizens consider their primary citizenship to be in heaven, which makes them good citizens in this world. We have a mind on heaven, and we live that way, then... We're good citizens while we're just guests on this earth. See, our citizenship is in heaven right now. We're at a, we're at a temporary home. We, we should be looking for the coming Savior who will transform our bodies to be like His. Are you, are you looking forward? Are you going, okay, God, where are you? God, when's, when's heaven? Where, where's heaven? God, I can't. Are you looking forward like that? In, in this crazy world of 2020 we live in, I mean, the pandemic, the the racial wars, the political craziness. I mean, oh, trying to figure out jobs. I mean, it's just been one crazy year. Are you looking forward going, God, where's heaven? God, I'm ready. God, my, my hope's in heaven. Look what he says in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, although the church in Philippi lived in Macedonia, their real homeland was in Rome. And so they heard the the words, our real home is heaven, as Paul describes in Philippi, and immediately start to grasp this phrase. They're like, oh, we know what he's talking about. Our home's in Rome. We're guests over here in this Macedonian area. And so he's making a comparison, and they connect the dots. Like, when you believe in Jesus, my home is now in heaven. They start to understand that that where they're living is a very temporary situation because they held that citizenship. They understand it. Something they were proud of, something they understood, something they grasped. Paul is making no mistake writing these words with the image of the Roman citizenship 
who are living in Philippi. On the other hand, we can never qualify on our own to attain that right and to be a citizen of heaven. You know how they became a citizen? They, they moved over to Macedonia and took up residency. You know, become a citizen of heaven? You let God move your heart and let him take up residency. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. When you do that, when you, when you believe in the blood, when you believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, you believe what Jesus has done on the cross, you believe he died for your sin, you know what happens? Your citizenship is in heaven. Immediately your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Many times we forget it. We forget that. And then we get distracted with this world. See, for the Philippians, as Roman citizens, death on the cross was the cruelest form of capital punishment. It was reserved for murderers. It was reserved for slave revolts. It was reserved for, for, the, for the hideous crimes that people would commit. Roman citizens were beheaded, though. They were not crucified. Jews felt the same way, but stoning was the method of execution. Deuteronomy, though, says anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Precisely, God came to earth in a form of human who became a curse for us. Became a curse for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for you and me. Despite the shame and the sadness of all, what took place on that hill of Calvary became arguably the most important fact of Jesus' life, followed by the most, most important fact of his resurrection. See, church fathers forbade its depiction in art until the Rome of Emperor, to the Roman Emperor Constantine, who made Christianity the state religion, and he presented the cross no longer as an emblem of suffering, but as an emblem of sacrificial love, as an emblem of a mark of humiliation, but as a good luck charm, a magic totem, and a symbol of Roman military victory. So it went from being something that was actually cruel and, and awful that no one ever dare think to wear or turn into a piece of jewelry to now we have rock musicians who are seeing crosses dangling from their necks and Roman armies had the cross painted on their shields and many Latin American baseball players stepped to the, to the plate to bat. Before they do that, they cross themselves. We wear it as jewelry. We put it on our bodies as a tattoo. All kinds of ways that we kind of glorify the cross way different than they would ever considered because the cross was seen as such a cruel way of taking somebody's life. Not only that, we put crosses up in our church buildings now. We put them on the outside. See, the fact of the matter is the cross was the modern-day equivalent of the guillotine, modern-day equivalent of the electric chair or the gas chamber or the, in the firing squad. It's not to be thought of as a Christian citizen as a fashionable vogue emblem that I wear. It means something different to the Christian citizen. When you look at the cross, what do you see? That's what Paul's drawing their mind to. The cross redefines God as one who is willing to renounce his divine power for love's sake because he loves you and me so much. Do we look at Jesus' powerlessness on the cross as an illustration of God's impotence? Or do we see it as God's proof of love for us? Do we see the cross as a stylish insignia or as an execution device, which God himself was slain for our sins? Do we see the cross as a reminder of my citizenship in heaven was not cheap? And since it's not cheap, I should live my life in a way that honors Jesus' death on the cross. See, the day we were saved and we were printed and gave our life to Christ, boom, we are welcomed into heaven as a citizen. Notice the joyous results of walking in the right way. There's an eager expectation of Christ's return. 
eagerness. Like, I can't wait for it to happen. Like, greater than waiting for Christmas morning as a kid. You know what that's like. If you have children or you remember, I remember being up at 2, 3 in the morning, sitting in front of the tree. Can't wait till mom and dad get up. How long can they, how long is it going to be? And I remember, I remember waking my dad up at 5 in the morning. Oh, it's Christmas. Oh, I got to get my pot of coffee. Dad, come on, we want to open presents. Dad, I can't wait to open presents. Remember how eager that was? And you've been through that experience with your children when they're so excited and you love just kind of slow. Now, hold on a minute. We tortured our kids. Open one present at a time. Take our time. Let's make it last all morning. As they're eagerly awaiting, how can I open my presents? That's kind of what Paul's saying. It falls short. Are you, are you like that child going, I can't wait for heaven. I can't wait for Jesus to come back. I can't wait. That day is coming. That's what Paul's saying. Are your eyes looking forward? Revelation twenty two twenty. Yes, I am coming soon. Second to the last verse in the Bible and the promise of our king who triumphantly declares, yes, I am coming soon. Well, how soon? You can't come soon enough. Can you come now? You ever think that way? Crazy pandemic, crazy politicians, crazy dollars things going on, crazy just all around us. How do you make it through the crazy? got to have the mindset going, Lord, I can't wait. I'm looking around the corner. Are you coming yet? Are you there yet? Are, are you coming? I'm ready, Lord. Because when you keep your mind looking forward, you can deal with all the junk that goes on while we're citizens on this earth too. Philippians 3.21, Paul says, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. So not only is this great thing of heaven coming, these bodies are going to be done away with. Who Can I get an Amen. Anybody ever wake up in the morning like, man, my back's hurting? Anybody have those problems? My knee's hurting? I woke up this morning and started walking. I said, my, my, my ankle's hurting. What what I do? I mowed the grass yesterday. My ankle's not feeling right. What's happening? And if you're not there, you'll get there. Trust me. And some of you know my stories. How you know, I'm throwing my back out just picking up a pair of socks. Why do you go on little eating plans? Because I want my body to lose a little bit of weight. I wish the gray wasn't coming in so much. My wife went to the beautician yesterday and spent um, just to get some gray out of her head. We all know what that's like. And we all know the desires that, you know what? I want this body to be renewed. I want it to be restored. And Paul's like, listen, it's coming. The day is coming. As long as you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and you believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection, it's coming. Paul says, that's how you have joy. That's how you have joy in all circumstances because sometimes life just kind of stinks. We need people that we can be imitating and we need to be imitators for others. Paul's calling us to that. Paul's calling us to despise the things of this world. Do you have a mindset that says, I live in this world, but I'm not going to participate in the world. My stomach is not going to be a stomach after the things of this world. My stomach is going to have desires for God. Paul reminds us, listen, while you're living here as a citizen, Keep your eyes fixed on heaven. Bow your head.